an original manuscript reading of If My Kingdom Were Of This World, Then My Servants Would Fight, A Believer's Refusal to Join Popular Christian Culture, written by Sean Aaron McCraney, narrated by Sean Aaron McCraney, and dedicated to my dad. Cast your whole vote, not a strip of paper merely, but your whole influence. Henry David Thoreau Preface I was born into and raised a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more popularly known as the Mormon Church. Aside from being highly organized and efficient at the game of religion, Mormonism employs a number of operational tactics that Dr. Robert J. Lifton, an expert on mind control, has labeled totalistic methodologies. These methods serve not only to unite Mormon congregates into a strong collective, but they also serve to exact conformity while simultaneously quelling most every temptation a member may entertain to criticize LDS doctrine, history, leadership, or practice. As an expected result, abandoning the Mormon faith altogether is an extremely difficult venture for most people who have believed and practiced its tenets for any considerable length of time. Those who are blessed with the fortitude to completely walk away from the faith rarely do so without experiencing enormous amounts of emotional, social, psychological, familial, and even at times financial and occupational conflict. Due to some highly abnormal characteristics of independence, which I believe God formed in me in my youth, I was not only able to walk away from 40 years as a dedicated and inculcated Mormon, but I was additionally blessed with the opportunity and inclination to then fight against those methods the LDS used to control the lives of those who remained behind. By leaving Mormonism and subsequently becoming a Christian bent on exposing the group's doctrines and practices, I have been both the recipient of great condemnation mostly from the LDS and atheistic postmodern humanists who do not understand criticism of anything, and some very supportive accommodation from Christians who are generally pleased to welcome defectors from any questionable group. Coming to a saving knowledge of the truth, meaning a true knowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, has without question been the most rewarding and beneficial experience of my earthly existence. What I didn't realize, however, was that while my mind is being renewed each and every day by a washing of the word, and that while the Holy Spirit is serving to open my eyes and ears and heart to Him with greater and greater clarity and intimacy, God has allowed me to retain my highly abnormal characteristic of independence and has now encouraged me to readily recognize similar totalistic methodologies that exist in the general body of Christ here on earth and to redirect the focus of my attention to these things, which I believe are doing far more harm to the faith than good, instead of on Mormonism. It will be of great interest to see if my brothers and sisters in Christ, who have over the course of the past six years greatly supported and at times even relished my criticism of Mormonism, if they can handle a similar critique of themselves. Please forgive me where and when I will certainly Error. Chapter 1. A History of Attempts When anything is done under the banner of Christianity, it ought to be by the fruit or tools of the Spirit, 
and never by the ways or tools of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ went to great lengths to avoid using his person and power for political means, even when men tried to make him the immediate solution to overcoming ugly social ills. He shared the good news of who he was, of what he came to do, and how the world needs him spiritually. Yes, on a few occasions, he fed the hungry masses, and yes, he was certainly in great favor of helping and serving those in need. But he was equally quick to tell those who gnawed on miracle loaves that they ought to seek rather for the bread of life than just bits of perishable food. In spite of his efforts, it didn't take long for his great spiritual work and the purposes for it to undergo tremendous alterations at the hands of misguided but possibly well-meaning men and women. We can look to the 13th century inquisitions, where the church and or the professed believers in Christ attempted to root out heresy through torture and even killing. In 1095, the first of nine crusades began when Pope Urban II pleaded for Christians everywhere to rise up and retake Jerusalem out from under Muslim control which only led to eight more crusades aimed at further world domination by the sword. Their Christian rallying cry, Deus Volt, which ironically means God wills it. Really? Was God the author of the theories and actions of 16th century Reformation leader John Calvin, who set the stage for our ugly modern Christian predicament of saving the world from social ills by presupposing that he had the authority of God in all worldly matters, even to the point of inflicting death upon those who disagreed with his theological views? Does that sound like the fruit of Christian love? Is this where it all started, with believers in Christ somehow coming to think that hand in hand with their faith, hope, and charity comes the God-authored duty, even the God-authored right, to reform social ills and condemn the sinful in the name of Christ, who himself came not to condemn, but to save. When and where did believers and followers of Christ, who with his chosen apostles set the course for what being Christian really means, come to believe in the errant presupposition that devoted Christians must also uniformly embrace certain philosophies, modes of governing nations, apparel, music, lifestyles, and personal preferences? When did the doors to the blood and body of Christ shut on certain groups because modern politically motivated Christians deem them morally bankrupt? Have we lost sight of the fact that even as saved and redeemed souls, all believers, in some form or another, also remain sinful? Did this modern piety gain steam when Princeton Seminary Professor of Theology Cornelius Van Til adopted Calvin's twisted ideas only to forge them into a modern movement within the church which focused on social salvation rather than the salvation of individual souls by grace through faith. Didn't we see all of these historical seeds really take root and blossom when they were watered in our generation by the dripping words of Rev. Jerry Falwell and his moral majority, or by a plethora of teleactivists like Pat Robertson, who led us into a burst of religious social activism of the Christian right in the 1980s and 90s. And as a direct result of all this, where do we find ourselves today? Ask yourself, 
Are Christians known today more for their undying faith in God and deeply felt love for all, or for their reputation for fighting against social evils like homosexuality, abortion, pornography, evolution, divorce, gay marriage, and the like? The answer provides us with some indication of how far we have strayed from the purpose and point of genuine Christianity. As believers in Christ the King, what are we truly called to be and do? Salt and light, not of this world, long-suffering, patient, loving, cities set on a hill. What were the words of Christ's great commission? Do you remember? Did he say, go forth and be ye right-wing, politically active, anti-homosexuals? Did the Lord say, go forth into the nation and picket abortion clinics? Yea, blow them to smithereens if you must. Yea, go ye forth and boycott McDonald's and other corporate empires that offend your Christian sensitivities? Or did Jesus say in Matthew 28, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. And from that passage, when he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded, what did he mean? To love. To love. John fifteen twelve said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John fifteen seventeen reads, These things I command you that you love one another. John thirteen thirty four says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Remember, Scripture does say in 1 John 4, 20, If a man says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? How on earth did we as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ ever allow the body of Christ to be tacitly represented by these conservative, often Republican, political action committees? And perhaps most importantly, where do we find any New Testament directives which tell believers that we have a Christian duty to fight the world and all of its secular failures along with, or instead of, sharing Jesus as the light and solution to all things? Let me answer. We don't find this type of directive anywhere in the New Testament. And yet it seems that more and more Christians are known more for their politics than their faith and love. This should have never come to pass. John 13.35 reads, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Every single day, almost without fail, our ministry is sent an email from some well-meaning believer whining about or fighting against the collective loss of Christian rights in the world. These missives complain about the Ten Commandments being taken down from municipal and federal buildings or the fact that creationism is being replaced with Darwinism in the libraries and labs of our public schools. Turn to almost any Christian radio station in America today and you are sure to hear some host frothing on about standing up for our rights, our right to wear crosses, our right to public prayer, 
our rights to protest at family planning clinics, and our right to free speech on public grounds. Now, don't get me wrong. All people ought to have the right to fight for or against any public policy which they are appalled and as they are personally so inclined. But there's a huge problem when these fights are associated with faith in Christ and the gospel we hold dear. Christians today are involved in everything from protecting our sacred borders to making sure we get a representative in office who will, darn it, protect our rights, our bloody Christian rights. What does the Bible say the rights of a believer are? Jesus said in Luke 6.22, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. How is a Christian supposed to take abuse that is heaped upon them by virtue of their Christianity? Are we to fight it or bear it in his name? What did Jesus say we are to do if we are used? Matthew 5.40 What did Paul say if our employers are unfair to us? Titus 2.9 What are we to do if we're struck in the face? Matthew 5.39 How did Jesus tell us to respond and treat our enemies? Matthew 5.44 We know the answers. I don't need to read them to you. And yet somehow we have come to believe that we have the right to fight offense, to sue, to complain, and to lash out in protest against the world that we can get our way over theirs. But what is said even of our master? John 3.16, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus did nothing politically, nor said anything about fighting the world. It is a sad day when the world identifies his followers by anything other than our faith in God and our love for him and our fellow human beings. Listen to John the Beloved again in 1 John 2.15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. Then he says in chapter 5 at verse 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Christians cannot get sucked into the sidetracking vortex of these empty modern causes. Understand, I am speaking of causes to stop sin not causes to help and serve the poor and sick and afflicted. Satan uses such vacuous causes to get believers off course and to render us ineffective in sharing the only true solution to the social ills, which is faith in Jesus, and to sway seekers who are offended by such tactics to avoid the cross at all costs. Instead, Christians ought to embrace all people in love, Share Jesus as the personal solution to all things. And no matter who they are, 
or who they continue to be, refuse to take up fleshly arms in a vain attempt to purify the world. It will not only build a wall between those who know the Lord and those who don't. It will never work in bringing people to Him, which is our primary purpose in letting our light so shine. Certainly, every Christian ought to be actively involved in serving the world, serving the poor, the lost with directions, the naked with clothing. But there's a huge difference between serving the world and fighting against Chapter 2. The World From the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus walked. The temptation to follow his own will and to turn from his father's had been extreme, but overcome by total humility. Waiting for him outside the garden wall was Judas, the betrayer, and a band of temple guards armed with swords and staves. In the face of his apparent confrontation, Peter took his own sword and, attempting to prevent the Lord from being taken, chopped off the ear of the high priest's servant Malchus. Speaking to Peter, Jesus said, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink of it? Then he proceeded to do what he came to do, and after healing Malchus's wounded ear, he allowed the temple guards to lead him off to the most horrible of human fates, for us. On the cross he forgave them, embodying all that he had taught his disciples to do, and be in response to this fallen and corrupt world. Since the singular scene outside the Garden of Gethsemane, men and women who lay faithful claim to Jesus Christ as Lord and Master of their lives have battled the very natural inclination that Peter failed to overcome, warring against the world by their own flesh and blood. Where Jesus said to turn the other cheek, Christians have a collective history of making exceptions to this rule, somehow forgetting that these exceptions were never the way of our king. Some cite his turning over tables in the temple as an example of his involvement in civil affairs, but we must remember that this was no civil affair but a religious one, an in-house cleaning of his father's house, I would suggest. How did the Lord instruct his sheep to respond to this misguided and vicious world, especially when faced with insult, injustice, and inequitable treatment for believing in him? Throughout the New Testament, the Lord and his apostles reiterate the foundational premise that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not of this world, and therefore those who truly understand and embrace it will not relate, respond, or interact with or against the world according to its rules and ways. Much of the difficulty the Lord's apostles had in understanding his heavenly message came from the fact that they thought he had come to establish an earthly kingdom. Armed with this misperception, the mother of James and John came to Jesus, presumably at the men's own request, and asked if her two sons would be allowed to sit Quote, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. End quote. Jesus let her know that this was not possible for him to give, implying that the kingdom was not an earthly domain that would be ruled by flesh, but instead a heavenly domain administered by the will of God through his Spirit. Every time the world misinterprets Jesus and his mission, and therefore seeks to make or sought to make him an earthly king focused on 
social salvation and fleshly moral reform, he refused the election. John 6.15 reads that when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Why? The answer can be found in his dialogue with Pilate shortly before his death. Standing before him, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. Throughout scripture, there is a clear delineation made between the kingdom of God and this fallen world. According to scripture, the two literally have nothing to do with each other in terms of how they are to operate. Where the world says litigate, sue, make demands, and seek retribution, Jesus said quite the opposite. Matthew 5.40 reads, If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Where the world says if someone hits you, hit them back, Jesus said in Matthew 5.39, Resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Every minute of every day, the world tells its minions to focus on making money, to accumulate wealth, and to become materially successful. But Paul, apostle to the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, taught in 1 Timothy 6.10, The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And where the world with its armies and political forces and its pawnbrokers chant might makes right, Jesus tells us to be meek and lonely and of humble hearts and to focus our hearts on the world to come. Is it possible, normative, even expected, for followers to be actively involved participants in and even against the things of this present world? Are we to fight against it? Legislate against it? Pick it and protest it? Where is the dividing line, if any? How much world is too much world? in the life of a believer. Should believers be seeking wealth, fame, worldly possessions? Is it our duty as recipients of everlasting life to make war with this world gone bad, to fight against all the social ills, to battle corrupt governments, and to threaten worldly institutions and ideologies of evil with collective economic sanctions if they won't do as we desire? Consider the fact that first, Jesus did not come to this sin-filled world to condemn it with anger and wrath, but to save it through love. John 3.17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 12.47 says, And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. As followers of the king, are we not called to take up our cross, follow him, and do as he did? In other words, to go and do likewise? Is our battle against flesh and blood, with the associated swords and staves, or against dark principalities in high places, which can only be overcome by prayer, faith, and love? What did John the Beloved write about our Christian duty? Do you remember? 1 John three twenty two twenty three. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, 
that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. Is it not true that genuine believers of the Lord and his gospel would be careful to recall that the disciple is not above his master, but every one that is perfect shall be as his master, and that our master has nothing at all to do with the way this world operates? Also consider the fact that Jesus plainly said, secondly, His kingdom is not of this world. When Jesus was taken before Pilate and tried, Pilate asked him in John 18, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. From this exchange, we learn from Jesus himself that his kingdom is not of this world. And the proof of this was that if his kingdom was of this world, then his servants would fight. Pilate then repeats the question, asking the Lord, Art thou a king then? And Jesus replies, Thou sayest that I am a king, which means, yes, I am. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. From these words we realize even more about the Lord and our duty in following him. Jesus certainly is a king. To this end he was born. And he explains what his birth and ministry were all about, saying that I should bear witness unto the truth. Is not this the sole Christian duty as well, to bear witness of the truth, who is Christ? Or is it to fight against social evil and make demands for moral purity so we can save the world from sin? Consider another scriptural fact. Third, as believers in Jesus Christ and disciples of his good news, we are called, at least over time, to become separate from the world even to the point where we are able to, quote-unquote, overcome it. In this, the scripture is clear. 1 John 5, 4, 5 reads, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? John makes it clear that if someone is born of God, then that individual will overcome the world. And he even tells us how, saying, And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And what is our faith? I would suggest faith is trusting wholly in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to not only redeem us, but to enable us to overcome the present world completely. Certainly we will not overcome the world, either in our own individual lives or collectively by the arm of the flesh, through political action committees, or in a united warfare against evil, but by our faith and love, which overcomes all. By these means, get that? By these means, Christians overcome the world. This separating and overcoming occur in the life of a believer as they learn to rely more on the Spirit of God within them and less on their own flesh existing without. Scripture says plainly in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When believers are allowed to remain in bodies of flesh and blood, they are faced with somewhat of a paradoxical problem. Our physical bodies have needs and at times even justifiable wants. As a result, we naturally resonate to or are drawn to the physical and material world around us. We at times crave the material elements surrounding us, things that will in all probability not even be part of the heavenly world to come. For example, while we are here, we love, even require, food and hydration. We desire modesty and protection through apparel. We have transportation needs. And in order to meet them, we have to earn money, right? And money is very much part of this world. Naturally, we are in many ways forced to give some time and attention to the things of this world then. Was John then telling us not to love these things, which in many ways are simply basic necessities of human life? Or was he writing about something different? How does a believer in Christ love not the things of the world, yet is at the same time forced to focus on obtaining these things throughout most of their physical life? Let's review a few ideas. Contextually, John is telling us that a believer cannot ever love the things of this world more than they love God. This means someone who loves God would never allow the things of this world to be their primary focus, their first priority, or a thing they love or worship or serve. You see, we serve what we love, right? If I love my flesh, I will serve it first. Well, John is telling us that we must serve God above all which tacitly means we love Him most. Jesus made it clear that it is impossible to serve both God and mammon, God and money. Why? He said if we try, we will love the one and hate the other. Therefore, it's impossible to truly serve them both. So the first idea is that God's true children would never love something or someone more than they would love Him, right? That's the first commandment. A believer would never let anything of this world take first priority in their life. Once this idea is firmly embraced and put into action, a believer is then at complete liberty to use the things of this world to sustain them in their service to the living God. Make sense? So while a follower of Christ would never love or serve money, if he or she is blessed with it, in the process of living in this world, They would use it to bear witness of the truth Jesus brought to the earth. Additionally, and to sort of bring an element of reason to the Christian response to the things of this world, we can't ignore the fact that God stocked this physical earth with things that can be specifically used and enjoyed while we are here in the flesh. Look at the vast and amazing amount of divergent foods God has created the abundance of materials with which we clothe our bodies, build our homes, and even print our Bibles. Look at the simply magnificent and inspiring elements found in the innumerable scenes of nature. So while we do not love the things of the world or ever place them before or even close to the same level as our love for God, we can certainly appreciate and use them to share and bear witness of the truth. Yet in spite of all these material gifts afforded to us by God, Thousands of extreme religious groups, supposedly bent on discovering supposedly bent on discovering what they call true spiritual enlightenment, 
have made asceticism, the renunciation of all material things, key to overcoming our bodies of flesh so that we may draw closer to God. I'm not so sure this is what God had in mind. I mean, why would God provide us with such a gorgeous, abundant world only to have his children wander around refusing to enjoy it? He wouldn't. It's just all about priorities. He just wants to be first and foremost in our minds and hearts. With this perspective in mind, I would suggest taking another look at John's meaning of the world when he wrote, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Knowing that God himself provided us with many necessary elements as a means to sustain life and bring solace and comfort to our bodies and minds, I would suggest that the things of the world which John speaks might also include less tangible items, like worldly practices, ideas, and philosophies, especially those found under the cloak of being a good Christian. Jesus did not come to rule the material world or to overcome its evil politically. So then why would we, as his followers, remember the following? Jesus himself never got involved in fighting worldly affairs. He never ran for office, never fought the Roman Empire, or told his followers to do the same. What did he instruct us to do? Believe, pray, feed the poor, love. Additionally, the apostles of Christ didn't get involved in fighting worldly affairs either. They just went about sharing and saving souls and establishing the church or body of Christ. And finally, Jesus and his disciples left believers with direct instructions for them to keep a very light touch on this fallen world in which we live. Now, what is so bad or evil or corrupt about the ways and means of this world that would cause God to tell his children to have nothing to do with them? John the Beloved gave us even more insights to this world when he wrote in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. Each of these descriptions of what is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, reflects the disposition of the flesh. Each is based on the self and on self-promotion, and each is a tool used in the world to get things done. In other words, when followers of Christ get involved with the things of this world to either fight against it or to join it, they employ tools the world uses which are antithetical to the tools the Father wants us to use. What, then, are the tools of the Father? Scripture calls them the fruit, not fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. When Christians turn from responding to the world through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and instead employ the tools God desires, we find ourselves not of the world, but of the Father, and then responding in love. The book of Galatians describes this fruit perfectly. Galatians 5.22.23 says, But the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. After the word love, there should be a colon, not a comma. There is only one fruit of the Spirit, and that is love. With joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, 
faith temperance being manifestations of this same love. Against the two great commandments, there is no law. So we can say a couple of things at this point in our examination of the gospel of Jesus Christ relative to this world. We can say that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world. And we can state that the opposite characteristic, which would be pleasing to God, is love, which includes joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance, and these things have nothing to do with the way the world truly operates. The point, when anything is done under the banner of Christianity, it ought to be by the fruit or tools of the Spirit, and never by the ways or tools of the world. Let's conclude this chapter by taking a minute to really try and examine both what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and what it is intended to do for the human inhabitants of this planet. In doing so, we might be able to more readily see that there is literally a thick black line that separates what it truly means to be a Christian in this world and what it means to be a participant in this world. So, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The word gospel is of Anglo-Saxon origin, and in the end it essentially means the good news or the good message. To summarize, I think we could call the gospel an understanding of God's method of salvation. And what is God's method of salvation? It is that God himself came to earth in the flesh, lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law which none other could, suffered death by the shedding of his righteous blood, and in doing so, he paid the price of all sin. After three days in the grave, he resurrected, ascended into heaven, and took his place on the right hand of the Father, desiring that all be reconciled to God by his grace through faith in him and him alone. When these essentials are understood and embraced, they become the welcomed intelligence of salvation, or good news, which transcends all other news one could ever receive. In many places, Scripture amplifies the word gospel by calling it the glorious gospel, the everlasting gospel, the gospel of salvation, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of peace. Take a look at these expanded phrases of the gospel. When an individual receives, understands, and embraces them in the way God intended the good news to be understood, things begin to change within and without them as compared to their former flesh in this life. The glorious everlasting gospel of salvation makes them a citizen of a new kingdom headed by a new king, Jesus Christ, and fueled by his divine grace. This kingdom is an altogether different world than the world from which we came. We begin to see and think and live by another source of power and strength, the spirit and spiritual things, namely faith and love. John fourteen seventeen says, Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. It is through this spirit of truth that believers begin to discern a peace which is very different from the peace the world provides. Jesus said in John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. 
Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Because those who receive the gospel of grace become citizens of another kingdom, one where Christ reigns from the heart by the fruit of the Spirit, which the material world cannot fathom or comprehend, believers begin to lose their conformity to the ways of the world around them. And over time, they abandon its methods and begin to concern themselves with doing as Jesus did, even to bear witness unto the truth. And nothing more. Chapter 3. Problems in the Modern Church Author's Note In discussing the modern church and the inherent problems found therein, I must note that my observations are general and do not apply to most Christian churches and pastors today. There remain innumerable pastors in the body of Christ that function as he would have them, and an enormous number of believers who do as his word dictates. This is probably more the rule than the exception. Unfortunately, some of the most misguided churches and their pastors are, for one reason or another, also among the largest in the nation, and therefore also the most recognizable religious institutions that we have, because they are frequently more often in the public eye than others. It makes it appear like the issues addressed below are endemic to all of Christianity, and they're not. The story is told in Islamic circles of a lion pup that was one day separated from his mother and wound up in the midst of a herd of sheep. There it was raised to adulthood, in time believing that it too was a sheep. One day, when the lion had fully grown, his mother located him and quickly realized that the lion suffered from a very extreme identity crisis. So she led the large cub to a pond and told him to look at his reflection in the still water. There the lion realized for the first time in its life that he was not a sheep at all, but a great king of the jungle. Using this illustration, Muslims often teach the simple principle to their adherents, you are not sheep, but lions. The exact opposite story, however, could and should be applied to all genuine Christians. That is, a lamb was lost, and he was miraculously found and raised up in the world by lions. In time, he began to believe that he was a ferocious king of the jungle. One day, a shepherd found the now fully grown sheep and took him out from among the lions. Seeing that the sheep thought he was a giant meat-eater, even a lion, the shepherd took the sheep to a large calm pond. There, looking at his reflection, the shepherd explained to the sheep his true identity, and he was to see himself for what he was, not a lion, but a sheep, harmless and willing to follow its shepherd. If followers of Jesus are by biblical parable sheep, then it stands to reason that we are also members of a parabolic flock. And if we are all part of a flock, then naturally we rely on the direction and dedication of a shepherd. Of course, all believers are individually and collectively in the care of the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him we ultimately place our faith and trust. But Scripture teaches that God has also placed the sheep of His flock into the hands of earthly shepherds, otherwise known as pastors. Sometimes, even these shepherds get misled. It's easy to do, and before they know it, they lose track of what their primary purpose is 
as sub-shepherds to the Lord's flock. In the book of Ezekiel, the Lord speaks of his anger for the shepherds, pastors, of the sheep, the children of Israel. Listen to the Lord's complaint in Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 6. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and you clothe you with the wool. You kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty you have ruled them. And they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. There are several indictments against the shepherd of Israel, which are included in these passages in Ezekiel. I would suggest that the same complaints can be leveled at some of the shepherds in the Lord's flock today, primarily the megachurches and the pastors who lead them. The charges God himself brings against the shepherd in Ezekiel include 1. They feed themselves instead of the flock. 2. They did not strengthen the diseased of the flock. 3. Neither did they heal the sheep which were sick. 4. Neither did they bind up that which was broken. 5. Neither did they bring again that which was driven away. 6. Neither did they seek that which was lost. And 7. But with force and with cruelty... They ruled them. Again, every one of these charges God brought against the pastors of ancient Israel are charges that could be brought against some shepherds in the modern church today. Modern Christianity faces a tremendous temptation to embrace the culture of the world or what I call a culture of carnality. This culture can be broken down into three general areas of errantry, including one, the pastor and or the believer's desire for numerical growth. 2. The pastor and the believers embracing materialism. And 3. The pastors and or believers focusing on social salvation. Using Ezekiel's cry against the pastors of his day, let's address these three areas of failure among pastors today. 1. The pastor and or believers desire for numerical growth. In the Ezekiel reference above, The first accusation the Lord lays at the feet of the pastors is, they feed themselves instead of the flock. I would suggest that this behavior is merely a symptom of the pastor's desire for numerical growth. Just as literal shepherds are to lead their flock to nourishing food, so are spiritual pastors to feed those given them of the Lord's nutritious spiritual food, the Word of God. This expectation becomes problematic if a pastor is bent on feeding himself instead. Let me try and explain. In the last 50 years or more, pastors have faced the growing problem of trying to compete with modern technological advances, which have made everything in this world more inviting and entertaining than people just sitting and listening to the words of a common human being. 
As a result, these so-called technological advances make it extremely difficult for many people, especially the young, to sit and learn from a man who is teaching from an ancient manuscript. In order to keep butts in the chairs, some pastors have decided to shy away from feeding the sheep the only food they need, God's word, and to have instead started feeding them words that itch their ears, make them laugh, or help them feel really good about themselves. Because the positive feedback for such teaching can be so resounding, children will always praise the candy man over someone who feeds them vegetables. And because some pastors love getting positive response about the things they say and do, many sub-shepherds today have chosen to feed themselves, their ego, their pocketbooks, instead of feeding the flock what it needs. There is no substitute for teaching from God's Word, verse by verse if possible, to those who believe and follow the Master. Resorting to anything else is akin to taking people of all ages and not only refusing to feed them nourishing meals, but instead choosing to offer them a steady diet of cotton candy. God's sheep do not ever need cotton candy. The world offers it to them in every flavor imaginable. They need the Word of God to renew their minds, to strengthen their spirits, and to protect them from the lies with which this world seeks to fill their hearts. Remember that the shepherds in Israel are first charged with the crime of feeding themselves instead of the flock. Today this relates directly to pastors not feeding the flock the Word of God. Let me reiterate because it's worthy of reiteration. When a pastor has a choice of either teaching a difficult set of biblical passages or to present some inviting and engaging message that merely incorporates aspects of God's words into their fluff, they are choosing to feed themselves, their ego, their fears, maybe even their wallets, instead of feeding the sheep. From my perspective, most pastors today find validation in the number of people in their flock. For them, more people in the pews translates to the idea that they are doing something right for God. So they begin to do whatever it takes to keep people coming, staying, and paying. Usually one of the first things to go is an exegetical verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word. When a focus on teaching the Word goes, churches usually become a numbers game. To keep the church, and even at times the pastor's wallet, on the winning side of the game, pastors face a week-by-week decision to teach the Word of God and risk boring, offending, and even losing people, or to teach an inspiring, motivational, entertaining sermon which helps retain the flock and at the same time help the church grow. More and more in this age of mega churches and big budget religion, it takes a lot more than just teaching the Bible to keep butts in the seats. But in the end, the result of this approach is a lose-lose for all involved. The Lord loses because His sheep are not being fed what they need to thrive and stay spiritually healthy. The sheep lose because they become diseased and ineffective at resisting the world. And the pastors lose because they are not only failing to do what they have been called to do, they find themselves constantly striving to produce better tasting cotton candy or run the risk of losing their candy-addicted sheep to someone else. Then the game gets really ugly. Moving on through Ezekiel's passage, the Lord further describes the pastor's failings by saying, The diseased they did not strengthen, neither did they heal that which was sick, neither did they bind up 
that which is broken. Once a pastor makes a decision to feed himself over the flock, it becomes impossible for him to care for the sheep that really need help because real help comes through real time. And real time given to difficult sheep means less time to build the church. When we look at the biblical illustration of shepherds and sheep, it is simple to see the ingenuity of God. Imagine a series of low, rolling, verdant hills spotted here and there by large oaks and gently divided by several slow, clear-running streams. Now imagine God's idea for His churches. Do you see the hills covered with 25,000 sheep, all under the supposed control of one shepherd? Or would you imagine a thousand shepherds, each with no more than 100, 200, 300 sheep in his care, spread out over the vast countryside, each flock with plenty of space, and all gently attended to? I see the latter, of course, and in this case of the Lord's modern church, I think he does too. And yet leaders of today's modern church seem to not only hope, but to openly strive to become bigger at all costs, aiming at becoming what is known as a megachurch. How many people do you have coming to your services is perhaps the single most asked question a pastor hears in the course of meeting someone new. If the number is small, the pastor finds himself trying to explain why. If large, he's patted on the back for having been successful. He feels validated in his service to the king. But this is just a way of the world imposing itself on the ways of God. Unfortunately, living in a numbers-oriented world usually translates to some pastors implementing a numbers-oriented agenda. The point is, how could a pastor who either has a large number of congregates or seeks to have a large number of congregates ever make the time to effectively care for the diseased sheep who wander into the flock? According to Jesus, is it not these very diseased sheep that need most or all of the shepherd's love and time? Remember what it says in Matthew 9, 11-12, when Jesus was seen eating with sinners. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. The irony can be dumbfounding, and this failure to care for the spiritually sick naturally flows into further failings, like those explained in Ezekiel, including, They didn't bring again that which was driven away, neither did they seek that which was lost. Shepherds of genuine woolly sheep, I would imagine, lose track of their flock in an assortment of ways. Some sheep are driven away, presumably by weather or by the threat of invading predators. Other sheep get lost on their own because of inattention, geographical anomalies, and or other distracting elements. But a true shepherd of the sheep will go to every means possible to locate that scattered or lost animal. He knows them by name. So would it be with shepherds of God's flock, unless, of course, they have lost touch with their purpose. In a flock of manageable size, one where the shepherd is in it to feed and care for the sheep, himself and his family, locating the lost or driven away would be a primary part of the job. It is only when the shepherd have lost sight of their purpose that members of the flock will go unnoticed or unsought 
once they are observed missing, if they are observed missing at all. Finally, Ezekiel describes the shepherd's relationship to the flock as aggressive, saying, but with force and with cruelty, you ruled them. As the numbers of a flock increase, the need for governing rules increases as well. And interestingly enough, the level of qualitative personal relationships will inversely decline. As this occurs, the church or religious institution will sadly show an increase in governing rules, which naturally leads to an increase in ecclesiastical discipline, which can at any time border on emotional and or ecclesiastical abuse. Dogmatism can rise up in this situation, as can clicks and cold shouldering from the obedient few. At this point, the pastor has perhaps grown accustomed to feeding himself instead of feeding the flock and might have begun to see members of the flock as something less than human and more in terms of biological entities, things, as it were, that provide sustainability to his needs and purposes, but, in his opinion, do not require or even deserve the love and care God expects them to receive at his hand. This, too, could contribute to the shepherd's cruelty and ugly force upon a body of believers. All of these things found in the book of Ezekiel are, in the modern Christian church, evidence of pastors seeking numerical growth for themselves over the personal spiritual growth and welfare of their individual congregates. 2. The pastor and or believers embrace materialism. A note. The following is a personal declaration of independence from the present-day materialism orbiting around the modern church in Christianity. The author is firmly committed to the biblical idea that there is liberty in Christ and no condemnation in Jesus Christ, so judgment is aimed more at practice and never at the state of salvation of even the most rabid participants in this present culture of carnality. This being the case, however, the following is written with the author's liberty in Christ to express disdain for the present-day materialism which saturates Christianity today. End note. Take a minute and look around at the general body of Christ today. What do you see? Money and representations of money. Why the ornate and expensive church structures, with their in-house coffee shops, bookstores, and multi-level stages for rock star entertainments? Why the Christian culture of accepted dress, hairstyle, music, and films? Why the high-priced Christian concerts, advertised and responded to no differently than any concert the world provides. In an effort to duplicate the world, have we, the body, become the world in the process? Maybe so. Hand in hand with ceasing to teach God's word, today's modern Christian culture of carnality has decided that it is justified in proselyting the world by mimicking it, with all of its materialistic trappings and, at times, attitudes that come with it. The justifications for this seem endless. Somehow Christians have convinced themselves that we are different from the world because our materialism is focused on products and presentations that are supposed to represent or preach Jesus. Why aren't we aghast and disgusted when a book comes out where the author claims God himself has granted him or her a special vision of something, like heaven, hell, marriage, the nature of Jesus, whatever, and they not only charge people for their singular insights, 
but they charge absolutely exorbitant prices for this supposed proprietary information that God supposedly wanted them to share with the world. How did we get to this point? I would suggest that all of it is directly related to one singular factor, a deficiency of God's living word in the lives of believers. As a result, many believers have embraced other things that comfort them and bring them some modicum of peace to their hungry souls. The fault for this deficiency falls squarely on the shoulders of pastors who more and more fail in consistently bringing their sheep to the living God through a comprehensive, exegetical, inductive approach to knowing and hearing His Word. Once God's Word is reduced, altered, eliminated, or twisted to conform to what is pleasing to carnal man and her itching ears, the sheep lose their footing on the rock and essentially become susceptible to all manner of thoughts, cares, practices, and ambitions eagerly offered by the fallen world. This perspective is fully supported by the Lord Himself in His parable of the sower. Let's consider Mark's account found in chapter 4 and begin at verse 3, where it says, Hearken, behold, there went a sower to sow. And it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And the other fell on good ground, and it did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some an hundred. And he said unto them, He that has ears, let him hear. The apostles did not fully understand this gorgeous parable, and when asking the Lord about it, received his explanation. At verse 14, the Lord says, The sower sowed the word. We know the sower is anyone who shares or teaches the gospel, and the seed that he or she is casting or is planting is the word of God, Scripture. From here, Jesus describes four types of people, and he does this by representing them through four plots of ground, saying, These are they, these are they. So with respect to the first type of person, the Lord says, And these are they by the wayside, when the word is sown, but when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. I would suggest that these are people who are exposed to the word of God, but it never takes any root or place in them because Satan immediately snatches the word away and they are left without belief. Then Jesus describes the next type of person, a believer, and says, And these are they which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when afflicted or persecuted, ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. The stony ground person or the stony ground heart, hears the word and immediately receives it with gladness, but they have no root in themselves and only endure for a time. We might ask why. Why would these only endure for a time? Jesus said that afterward, after enduring for a time, affliction and or persecution arises for the word's sake, 
and they are immediately offended. Persecution and or affliction, which comes because of what the Word teaches, immediately offends them. And guess what? They produce no fruit in the Christian walk. They wither and shrink from what could have been if they were strong in the Word of the Lord. But then Jesus describes another type of believer. Ready? This type of believer perfectly depicts many people in the present body today. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Again, the word is sown, but the ground or the heart upon which it is sown is also growing a thorny weed, which mingles with the word of God and chokes it. And these become unfruitful Christians as well. Unfruitful in what? Unfruitful in love. You see, they care too much for riches, for the things of the world, or for the lust of other matters, and there is no room for the word to fully expand within them. The result is what we see all around us today because the lust of other things entering in, choking the word and it becoming unfruitful. What a perfect picture of many modern mega churches now. Finally, Jesus gives the ideal he seeks in the life of all who follow him and says, And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bringeth forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, and some a hundred. The third problem. Modern pastors and or believers focus on social salvation. Scripture is plain. Christians are to be known above all things by their love. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus delineates this non-negotiable characteristic repeatedly. Now don't just skip over these verses. Listen to what they say. Read what our King and Lord said. They speak frankly on how followers are told to be different from citizens of the world. Ready? Luke 6, verses 20 through 38. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you that hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you that weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for, behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophet. But woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for you shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did your fathers to the false prophets. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them which curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek, offer the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid him not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that ask of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if you love them which love you, what thanks do you have? For sinners also love them that love them. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thanks do you have? 
for sinners also do the same. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thanks have you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful, and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with that same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. The Lord is emphatic. Those who follow him do so in a way that is not normative as compared to citizens of the world. Why? Because we are not of this world. And this ought to be manifested in the very lives we live. It is virtually what we do that truly tells others about who we are. When the world rejoices, Christians weep. When the world attacks us, we allow it and invite more in his cause and name. When the world seeks for wealth, we seek after God, hoping for treasure in heaven. When the world says retaliate, Jesus says endure. When the world cries unfair, we relinquish our rights as his children and in his name. Jesus himself told us to love our enemies. He said, do good to them that hate us. He said, bless those who curse us. Pray for them which despitefully use us. He said, if someone takes our goods, give them more. If someone asks of us, give to them. He tells us to judge not. He tells us not to condemn. He tells us to forgive everybody of all things, all the time. However, and again, as a result of people not hearing or knowing the word of God, the modern church has, in many ways, become known more for what they are against. Homosexuals, drugs, pornography, abortion, Islam, Darwinism, etc., instead of what Jesus commanded us to be known for, total, sold-out love for all. Because modern believers lack in mature spiritual growth, which comes through a steady diet of God's Word, modern Christians lack in real Christian love. Yet they make up for it in a fanatic zeal to rid the world of social evil. This helps them feel accomplished and progressive in their walk like they are actually doing something pleasing or important with their Christianity, forgetting that the command of Jesus is for his believers to love. It is at this point that fighting or solving social ills becomes a replacement of the gospel of sorts, by serving to help the participant to feel Christian, when in reality all they are doing is giving people of the world reason to never want to be Christian themselves. At the risk of being wholly redundant, the Christian call has never been to try and cure or fight the world's evils and all that they entail. Jesus overcame the world on a cross. The believer's walk has since been to share the only eternal, spiritual, and temporal solution to the fallen world, Jesus Christ, who was born, who lived, who died, and who was raised from the dead. The only truly effective way to share and represent him is by and through love. Chapter 4. The Fleshly Demand for Equality 
the Christian requisite to suffer injustice. From a very early age, human beings are exposed to the realities that exist between performance and rewards. Toddlers learn that obedience to their parents' commands brings smiles, hugs, and clapping, while disobedience evokes frowns, discipline, and at times a loss of privileges. Most people grow up and learn to function in a meritorious world. Good grades produce better opportunities, going to work produces a paycheck, eating right and exercising often produce a slimmer waist and better general health. One of the byproducts of growing up and learning to operate under this system of merit is the very human expectation of fairness and even hopefully equality. For example, George worked very hard in high school. He went to college and obtained advanced degrees. George ought to be successful, right? Especially when compared to Stan, who did nothing but goof off in high school, drop out of college, and bum around the beach for most of his young adult life. When people agree to live and play under a meritorious system, they usually expect life to be fair, just, and equal. When it's not, there is a natural reaction within them to fight for their rights, to demand justice, and or to be offended or embittered. Such reactions are generally expected among the children of this world, but according to God, they should not be expected to be part of the Christian repertoire. In fact, it appears that the idea of fairness ought to be completely forfeited by those devoted to Christ. Why? Well, let's look to our King as an example. Jesus was from everlasting to everlasting, yet he was born in a manger. He was master of all, but he had no place to rest his head. He created all things, all the beautiful things of heaven and earth, and yet his own person was not beautiful, nor had anything of which men would desire. He was reviled, rejected, and beaten unjustly, and yet he was wholly fair and just to all. He was stripped bare, slashed, and nailed to a wooden cross, yet he hurt no one. Instead, he only helped, healed, and served. And he gave his life though he is the only person on earth who did not deserve to die. Then, in the process of dying an undeserved death, he asked God to forgive those who had inflicted death and pain upon his innocent person. The argument follows that if Jesus Christ is truly our King, our despot, according to Acts 4.24, and he endured these things, we ought to endure injustice, inequality, and unfair treatment too in honor of him and his ways. Scripture is replete with passages supporting the attitude believers ought to have toward injustice, inequality, suffering, and persecution. Consider what the Lord said in the Gospel of Matthew 5.10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And how were the prophets persecuted? They were belittled, mocked, attacked, and killed. Their rights were stripped from them, and they were left with only one avenue of response. Forgiveness, prayer fasting, and faith in God. In the passage above, how does the Lord tell those who are His how they ought to respond when they are subjected to the very same treatments as the prophets of old? He says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. 
not take up picket signs, hire lawyers, or fight, but rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. You see, our actions and responses as believers really do come down to a matter of faith. Do we really believe our rewards are actually waiting in heaven, or do we think we need to take action now to make all things fair? Is God really in control like we constantly claim? Is it only fair and right to fight? Is our resistances to the modern world needed to somehow ensure the freedoms of future Christian generations? Hear what our King said about the world's response to those who believe and follow Him. He said in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Speaking of his apostles, the Lord in a prayer to his father said in John 17, I have given them thy word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Once Jesus ascended and the apostles stepped up, spirit-filled and taking the gospel into all the world, they experienced this promised hatred firsthand. Paul, speaking of his apostolic trials, wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Nevertheless, amidst much suffering, the apostles considered any and all mistreatment not a cause for retaliation or revenge, but for celebration. Acts 5 says, And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Later on in his ministry, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, applied these sufferings to all who walk with Christ, saying in 2 Timothy 3, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Many Christians do not realize that we are not only called to believe and love, but to suffer. Listen to, listen to Philippians 1.29. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Why? Why on earth would God want us, his children, his sons and daughters, to suffer trials and persecutions? Again, Paul makes the reason clear. Romans 5 says, We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. Suffering and injustice somehow bring us, conform us, mold us more closely to the person of Christ. 
Philippians 3, 9 through 10 says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Suffering as Christ suffered somehow teaches us to live by the Spirit rather than the flesh. It allows the power of God within us to thrive and grow and take charge while the power and might of our flesh diminishes. 2 Corinthians 13.4 says, For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. The humble, self-effacing, enduring approach in the life of a believer is not suggested. It is literally an outward manifestation of God within our person, of our Christian walk, and of our devotion and love for God. Consider the imperative description found in 2 Corinthians 10. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 1 Corinthians 2.5 reiterates the point saying that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And 2 Corinthians 4, 7 makes it clear, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of power may be of God and not of us. Yes, it is actually the suffering we endure and experience and embrace as believers that bears witness to our souls that we are His. By reacting to the world as the world reacts, how can we see ourselves as anything different or unique? We really can't. Paul says in Romans 8, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And finally, 1 Peter 4, 12 says, Beloved, think not it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Somewhere over the timeline of the past 2,000 years or so, Christians have come to believe that the world ought to love them, embrace them, receive them, and just adore their lifestyles. As a means to fulfill these errant expectations, the body began to adopt the ways of the world. We've begun to fight using its tools, to live by adopting its pleasures, to market our faith by incorporating its tactics and strategies, 
all to the chagrin of the Holy Spirit and God's written word, and most of it in an effort to be treated fairly, kindly, and even embraced. No believer can ever forget that inequality, suffering, injustices, and persecutions are to be expected and endured. When they don't come or they are not endured, that is the time for concern. Additionally, every believer is commanded to respond to these inequities the way the Master responded, with love. Chapter 5. Dangers of Assimilation When Christians associate with the peas of the world, people, policies, practices, politics, the dangers to the body of Christ are far greater than any supposed or imagined benefits. Rarely will such associations ever improve the world, and yet almost every association will serve to corrupt the body. When I write associate, I mean to have a close, intimate, personal relationship with. When our daughters were very young, I used to share a very simple illustration to help them understand the value of good associations. I would preface the illustrative story by saying something like, clean will always lose when it meets with dirty. To illustrate the point, I would ask them to imagine two large pails, one full of crystal spring water and the other full of gross, smelly sewage. I would then ask what would happen if I took a cup of clean water and poured it in with the oily sewage. Would the sewage then become clean, I would ask? No, they would reply with an attitude of obviousness. I would point out that it would take millions and millions of gallons of water mixed in with the pail of sewage to dilute it to the point where a person could consider it clean enough to use or drink. But even then, the thought was disturbing to their little minds. On the other hand, I would ask, what if we took just a teaspoon of that sewage and poured it into the fresh pail of water? Would you think the water was then okay to drink since it only has a little bit of sewage in it? Of course, they would recoil at the thought in only the way kids can, and their response would open us up to a conversation about the word contamination. The point being, it only takes a drop of filth to make something very good dirty, but it takes a million times more of something clean to make something dirty pure. Another illustration I would give would be for them to imagine themselves standing in a beautiful white dress, I mean spotless and glowing white dress, right next to a huge puddle of mud full of boys splashing and throwing clumps of the stuff at each other. How long before that gorgeous spotless dress is spoiled? Not long. All it takes is one drop of the mud. But what would happen if they removed the dress and used it to try to clean up the mud puddle? The dress would not make a dent. So it is with the church. And yet more and more, for all sorts of seemingly good reasons, the body of Christ has been willing to join hands with the secular world, even with groups that have long been considered the cults, in order to try and fight against the growing human depravity that surrounds us today. How about a living case in point? Mormonism, Christianity, and the state of the nation. A person would be hard-pressed to find a better gathering of moral, hard-working people than the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also called the Mormons. As a whole, they are highly organized and thrifty. They encourage honest living. 
and firmly stand as a people on what they call traditional family values. In California, where the state has been pushing to legalize homosexual marriages, the LDS Church has led the way in fighting against such social corruption by rallying their members to publicly and monetarily stand up, and stand up they have. Pulling from vast amounts of wealth and human resources, the LDS Collective fought against what was named Proposition 8 Initiative and won for the time being. Conservative Christian groups as a whole have praised the Mormons for their Christian values and their willingness to express these values at the risk of great public backlash. Slowly and apparently inspired by the good work of the LDS, Bible-believing Christians have stepped from the sidelines and joined in the fray, somehow deluding themselves with the notion that they too are saving or changing the world, yet all the while forgetting what their only true and living call is as believers, to share the truth of Jesus Christ crucified with the lost and to love in response to their every action. There is no white dress capable of cleaning up the mud. Only him and his shed blood can change lives. But is it not incumbent upon us, some continue to ask, you know, as believers and followers of the true and living God, to join hands with groups like the Mormons and rise up against these growing social ills? Not in the least. And it never has been. And while we may agree with the Mormon church that evil is certainly on the rise and that it must not be embraced by a follower of Christ, the Christian solution our response, our approach to such evil as believers, ought to be entirely different from street protests, political machinations, or employing the strong arm of wealth and human resources. If we are repulsed, our response ought to be one of prayer, fasting, sharing love with the lost, not fighting them in the halls of justice or in the streets in the name of Christianity. To reiterate the word of God, Ephesians 6 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. As believers, our fight is not man against man, flesh against blood, because these fights divert us from the real issues, who Jesus is and what he offers and get us sidetracked into actions and operations that the darkness just adores. Think about it. When the darkness can get people out in the streets protesting against individuals, it creates anger, contention, hard feelings, and at times even physical confrontations. The ugliest sides of humanity quickly come to the surface when people are ardently fighting for a moral cause and or what they believe is a human right. We dig our heels into terra firma and feel morally justified and can't help but end up feeling and acting superior. But who is our king? And what weapons of warfare did he leave us and suggest? What did he do when the greatest social injustice to ever take place occurred right at his own feet and against his own body? Did he call in 10,000 legions of angels to wipe out the sinful mess? No. He prayed. He asked the Father to forgive them. He loved. And he trusted. So in the first sense, assimilation with the world, or with the so-called cults, 
in an effort to fight against the world is dangerous because it produces, even if temporarily or permanently victorious, the opposite effect of what Christians are called to produce. Fruits of love, wrought by humble, faithful prayer in Him who is mighty to save. These fruits produce what God seeks, more confirmed and convicted believers who too learn to respond to this suffering world with love. But assimilation dangers do not end here. Whenever what is deemed Christianity joins hand with what is certainly not Christianity, Christianity loses. It becomes diluted, as it were, and the non-Christian elements embraced wins. This is the lesson to my daughters. You cannot hang with the dirty and make them clean. You will only get dirty yourself. With the victory of temporarily stopping gay marriages in California under their belt, the Mormon church has in many ways been viewed favorably by the Christian community as a whole. So how have the Mormons responded? They initiated an all-out campaign in an effort for their faith to now be seen as normative and hopefully Christian. They've launched national media blitzes aimed at getting people to see them as progressive, successful, and diverse, and have overwhelmed the internet with self-appointed apologists defending the faith as truly being Christian. One of the nation's most popular television commentators, Glenn Beck, who is a faithful Latter-day Saint, has led a national charge across the nation for Americans to reclaim their liberties and restore the country to its former self. His efforts are being hailed far and wide by many otherwise astute Christian leaders as being brave, wonderful, and part of the Christian call. Again, because we have made social policy, politics, and cleaning up social ills a primary focus in the body, men like Beck and groups like Mormonism are more and more becoming acceptable to our hard-won Christian faith, even though the Bible emphatically rejects their extreme and strange doctrines. It's as if Christians today really don't want to know that groups like the Mormons believe in other books of Scripture, consider the Bible errant, or think that God was once a man, because Mormons love the nation and hate gay marriage. Can you see how lost we have become by assimilating with the world, even with a part of the world that does good things? But hold on. Like the great New Testament preparer John the Baptist, Glenn Beck is but a forerunner to the national Mormon savior who will charmingly represent himself as a social redeemer to the crumbling federation. His name, who knows? Used to be a Romney, could be a huntsman, could be any other as far as that goes. But he or she will be Mormon and they will continue to do all they can to win the Christian vote. And when a Mormon takes office or a Jehovah's Witness or a Christian scientist or any other non-Christian entity, Jesus Christ isn't glorified, Mormonism is, or the Watchtower Association is, or the Christian scientists or Scientologists. Get it? And then the world, through apparent goodness, will actually become more corrupt, all because Christians cared more about saving the nation and its social ills than sharing the only solution to corruption that has ever existed, Jesus Christ crucified. We've lost our way, and we're scrambling to find it through moral reformation, political policy, 
And in the case of our alliances with the Mormons, by embracing beguiling demagogues who appear Christian, but worship at the altar of an altogether different God with a completely different view of Jesus. Doesn't history prove this? Didn't Constantine's efforts at making a national church weaken the body or strengthen it? It almost entirely killed it. How about the Church of England or any other attempt at so-called Christian religion to establish theocratic control? Finally, assimilation with the world and or the cults through political action will in the future expose the body of Christ to governmental sanctions and restrictions which would otherwise be avoided if we limited our activities to sharing the salvation, lordship, and love of Jesus with the world instead of trying to eliminate social evils in his name. Under the accusation of disseminating hate speech, the body of Christ is going to quickly see itself not only restricted from its present foolish acts of street demonstrations and political maneuvers, but we will also discover that it may become illegal for us to even share Jesus and his word. Why? While we can point the finger of blame at the so-called liberal agenda and its determination to kill God, as it were, the reality is it's our own damn fault. How? Because we have chosen to associate, even replace, living and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with fighting social ills and trying to legislate morality. In doing so, we are actually giving the government ammunition to shut Christianity down completely. Whenever all Christians did was teach Jesus and truth and love, we had rights, especially here in the United States. But because of our purposeful or inadvertent associations with rabid political and social religionists, the church is going to pay an exorbitantly high price, the inevitable inability to worship how, where, and what we may. But instead of turning our focus where it should have been all along, humbling ourselves to the dirt, and loving instead of protesting, many so-called Christian activists or tele-activists have made it their life's work to resist governmental efforts to shut us down, not realizing they are only giving them reason to do it. What did God say? Psalm 46.10 Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. If God wanted us to win the world through social reform and battles over moral corruption, he would have sent a lawyer in a suit of armor. But that's not how our salvation came, and it's not how he has ever suggested believers ought to live. In the next chapter, we'll attempt to suggest an alternative approach, perhaps a more biblical approach than what the current representatives of Christianity are presently offering as a response to this world. Though highly controversial, some of them may bring more people to the cross than any of our past individual or collective efforts have combined. Chapter 6. Possible Recommendations of Refusal and or Submission So, we know from the Bible that true Christians are going to be mistreated, face injustice, be persecuted, and despitefully used. Jesus promised this. We also know that true Christians will have as little to do with the world as possible, recognizing that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and pride of life, is not of our Father, but of a world to which we no longer belong. Furthermore, we know that, 
as the world spins on, it is unquestionably getting deeper and deeper into gross sin and darkness, even to the point where men only seek to do their will and not God's. Yet in the face of this, true Christians also know from the Word of God that our response to such darkness is to be spiritual, and we are to wage against it with weapons of spiritual warfare and not carnal conflagrations. We are to submit. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to accept lawsuits, loss of rights, even death. And while all the while we are peaceably and lovingly sharing him with all who are willing to hear. Unfortunately, the body of Christ today has mistakenly become better known for what they stand against, what it stands against, abortion, pornography, homosexuality, evolution, than what we might truly be standing for, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what can we do? We can turn back from our present course and respond to the world and its cunning darkness in another, more Jesus-like manner? I would suggest that if we stay the present course and choose to build upon what we have been doing, we will lose. And our opportunities to share Jesus, the true biblical Jesus, will be greatly reduced, if not eliminated altogether. Maybe there's a better way. While radical, and in some ways highly objectionable to our natural desires for living life in a moral land, I would suggest the time is quickly approaching where members of the body of Christ ought to individually and collectively consider adopting the biblically described model of a Christian. Though certainly not exhaustive, this model might include some of the following. Number one, leaving the world and all that it represents completely behind. I mean this ideologically and not literally. We might achieve this ideological departure by A, humbly submitting to any and every injustice in his name. This might include loss of inalienable rights, rejection and persecution even unto death. B, refusing to participate in the public reform of any social ill, especially in the collective name of Christianity, but instead spending our time, effort and resources sharing Jesus Christ crucified and the love he offers all. And C, refusing to financially support or fund any Christian or non-Christian efforts to reform the world politically, but to rather endorse and support the strengthening of the saints, the caring for the poor, especially orphans and widows, and sharing the gospel with all who will hear. This is active involvement, but only in an effort to serve and build people, not to fight them. Number two. Demanding reformation from what the current body of Christ is calling Christianity today. This might include refusing to belong to any church that substitutes or replaces the Bible and or personal Bible ownership with manuals, books, and extra-biblical scripture. Establishing and or participating in small house church efforts while rejecting all drives or campaigns that are aimed at building bigger, more luxurious, or more popular religious edifices. Refusing to stay in a church that does not consistently teach the Word of God to its members with a sound hermeneutic and from a solid exegetical approach. And refusing to belong to any church that does not welcome any and all to hear the Word of God or that refuses to teach the Word of God in truth and love with the exception, of course, of someone who poses a physical or emotional danger to others, or someone who publicly teaches heresy to the flock after being counseled to desist. 
Number three, humbly submitting to all governmental controls and legal demands, but at the same time, refusing to join any political group or movement backed by supposed Christian groups, refusing to vote for any candidate ever again, especially under the guise of being a follower of Christ, who represents or claims to represent Christianity, adopting an attitude which prayerfully places the fallen world in God's hands with the prayerful hope that any ensuing national chaos may lead more people, though possibly broken and bloody, to the cross. Praying for the nation, fasting for the world, giving time, funds, and attention to the poor, especially the widows and fatherless, serving the community, not fighting against it, adopting the Acts chapter 2 model of church, which includes continuing steadfastly in the word of God, fellowship, breaking of bread, which can mean communal meals or communion, praying, praising God, and last but never least, having favor with all people. Finally, becoming a people who relentlessly walk by faith, share truth and love, embrace all people all the time, serve the community, not fight against it, and endure any and all persecution for these actions and attitudes. All of this, plus whatever else the Lord will have His children do, is achievable only when believers in the world over choose to abandon their cares for this realm and make sharing Jesus their life ambition. Chapter 7. Christ's Code for Christian Living What is a Christian? And what differentiates what we call Christianity from every other ism, ist, or ology the world offers? Is Christianity a mode for living, a specific worldview, or a set of rules and regulations people adopt? Certainly there are plenty of icons and activities associated with what people call Christianity today. Crosses, not-of-this-world stickers, going to church, doing worship, reading popular books, listening to Christian radio programs, and are watching Christian television. Is this what Christianity is, or do these things outwardly reflect something far more important that resides within believers? After being baptized of John in the River Jordan and fasting 40 days and nights in the wilderness, where he was tempted of the devil, to, by the way, feed the lust of his flesh, the lust of his eyes, and the pride of life, Jesus called his chosen apostles, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain where his disciples joined him. According to Matthew, chapters 4 and 5, it was up on this mountain that Jesus taught the very first lesson on Christian living. We collectively refer to this teaching moment as the Sermon on the Mount. In the first 11 verses of this sermon, the Lord lays out the key to living a blessed Christian life. A happy Christian life, if you will. His words are profound, quixotic, and highly paradoxical, especially when compared to what the world describes as key to personal happiness. I would strongly suggest that in this first sermon, Jesus literally lays out a progressive model for genuine Christian living, which takes us from the moment we are saved through the cycles of walking the Christian walk. So here we go. First of all, it's important to realize that verses 3 through 11 in chapter 5 of Matthew are progressive in nature. They describe a dynamic process believers experience as they sojourn from being born again, a babe in Christ, and a mature believer here on earth. I would not go so far as to say they are formulaic, 
because they may occur concurrently and even out of order over the course of our lives. But nevertheless, the Lord does explain them in an order in his teaching, and I would suggest that this order is paramount in understanding authentic Christian living. So let's check out the first beatitude. In Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I would suggest that this verse describes two states of a believer. First and foremost, it describes someone who has just received the Lord and has been saved, born again. What led them to this point? Humility. They were poor in spirit. In this humility, they realized who they were, sinful, who God is, holy, and the only solution to this chasm between themselves and God is Jesus. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a done deal, and it occurred as a result of them breaking or of them being poor in spirit. Verse 3 describes the state of mind and attitude of all who receive what God offers and are spiritually regenerated, a poor and broken spirit. So that's number one. The next thing Jesus says, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. These words suggest what often occurs in the life of a new believer. Mourning. Mourning over the lost years of their wasted lives, over the sins they have committed, over the family members who do not understand their becoming Christian, over the world and how they let it influence them so strongly throughout their life. Mourning is a negative. It infers a loss, a loss of an old self, of an old life, and a remorse for time wasted. Notice, too, that where Jesus says in verse 3 that for those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4, he says that those who mourn shall be comforted. This is because verse 3 speaks of a certainty of a believer's salvation. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But verse 4, and actually verses 5 through 9 too, speak of rewards waiting believers in the future. They shall be comforted, etc. So from verse 3, we see that those who are poor in spirit are assured the kingdom of heaven. And from verse 4, those who mourn shall be comforted at some point in time. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 then says, Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The believer is saved. They mourn over the lives lived and maybe over the difficulty of being a Christian. Verse 5 then introduces us to the next higher level of authentic Christian living, meekness. It comes with time and the realization that the old ways of the world we once embraced are not the operational methods God endorses. He wants meekness, and meekness comes as we abandon, mourn, the things of the world. Verse 3, 4, and 5 are all about losing the old man or woman of our former lives. They are words that describe our response to seeing who Jesus really is and who we have been. We become poor in spirit. We mourn. We become meek in the face of it all. This is the pruning that takes place over the course of our lives, and it is never-ending. Notice, too, that the promise to the meek is not immediate, but that they, too, shall inherit the earth. Verse 6 then introduces us to some building blocks included in the authentic Christian walk. Let's read it. 
Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Here Jesus describes the positive workings of the Holy Spirit within us. In verse 3 through 5, the Lord is removing elements of our former lives, and the extraction leaves a void in our once earthbound souls. Now, at this point, verse 6, Jesus portrays the building work of the Holy Spirit, telling us that we will discover happiness when we hunger and thirst after righteousness. We will add happiness to us. Many people suggest this means striving for moral perfection. I would suggest that there has only been one righteous person to ever walk the earth, and that to hunger and thirst after righteousness is to hunger and thirst after Christ. In this way, fallen human beings are then equipped to literally take righteous action and embody righteous thought. Notice again that the reward is future tense. They shall be filled. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Another positive characteristic found in the maturing Christian. We have been broken, humbled, poor in spirit over our own faults. We have mourned over them to the point that we meekly respond to the things of the world. We have begun to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And now in response to other people's faults and failures, we become merciful. Mercy rarely comes from the heart of a man who sees himself as sinless. It is the very process of verses 3 through 6 that leads a person to extend mercy to those filled with sin and error. This sanctification of the soul is a beautiful road, especially when a believer can look back over his shoulder at verses 3 and remember, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 8 Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Suddenly the Lord has brought us to the point in our walk where our hearts are literally pure in areas of action and attitude. Praise Him, for it is here that we begin to experience real freedom. Our hearts are literally pure in relation to our attitudes and our actions for others and for God. Here religious piety and moral superiority begin to fade. Here is when the love of God is made manifest and, because He is living ever stronger within our person, we are able to love unconditionally, to forgive openly, to embrace all without judgment or derision, and we can certainly overcome many fleshly ambitions which once governed our former lives without Christ. Of course, and again, the promise of reward, seeing God, is futuristic here. As Jesus said, those who are pure in heart shall see God. Now we come to the culminating effect of all Christian characteristics working within our person. Peacemaking. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We have let the world go. We have sought Christ as we seek for food and water. We have responded with hearts pure and full of mercy and love. The natural response to the world is not warfare. It's not fighting. It's not retribution or seeking to be validated. It's peacemaking, authored by the Prince of Peace who lives within. Based on all that Jesus has described here in the life of a believer, we now come to one of the most paradoxical moments in Scripture. At the risk of great redundancy, let me restate the order and premise. First, poor in spirit. We receive the kingdom of God. It is 
ours. Then we mourn over a number of issues depending on the individual. Next, we grow meek of soul as our king was meek. These things lead us to hungering and thirsting for more of him, more righteousness. Filled with more of him, we become more merciful as he was merciful. And then Jesus tells us that we will be peacemakers. Got all that? Well, look at what he says next in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Based on his teaching, if we take it as a progressive, semi-chronological set of dynamic attributes working within us, we will be blessed to be peacemakers. And the result? The next directive? Persecution. For becoming peacemakers. For doing and being all these things for righteousness' sake. For Christ's sake. Jesus has taken us up the ladder, so to speak, of what it means to authentically live the Christian life. And in his description, he tells us that we will be blessed if we make peace. Yet the very next challenge, yes, the very next warning states that persecution is coming around the bend and we will be blessed if we are persecuted for his purposes. Notice also that in this verse, Jesus places the mature, peaceful, merciful, meek, righteous-seeking, mourning, and now persecuted believer right back at the same level of salvation as those who are merely poor in spirit, saying to those who are now persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. However, in speaking of all other attributes, Jesus simply lays forth the rule, blessed are those who do this, for they shall have that. But in the case of persecution, he goes into far greater detail, covering three verses and saying, Matthew 5, 10-12 Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Based on the order, words, and structure of these ten verses, I would suggest and summarize the following. First, salvation is assured for any and all who humbly come to Christ poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Second, that promised blessings await those who progress in Christ who are willing to let him work his work within them. They shall. Third, once believers reach a point where they might think they have arrived in their Christian walk, they will be persecuted. Fourth, if they are successful in facing persecution for righteousness' sake, they are no better, in terms of salvation, than those who simply and humbly receive Christ in the first place. And if they fail to endure persecution for his sake, they are no worse. I would heretofore suggest that the code to Christian living amounts to several specific things of which we have only mentioned a few. But to successfully enter in and experience what God has in store for all who have entered in, I think we must realize that we possess an entirely new identity founded in Him. Many verses would speak of new identity. I would heretofore suggest that the code to living a truly Christian life amounts to several specific things, of which we have only mentioned a few. But to successfully enter in, 
and experience what God has in store for all who have entered in, I think we must realize that we possess an entirely new identity founded in Him. Chapter 8, The New Identity Among many verses which speak to this new identity, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The Holy Spirit did not move Paul to write this in jest, nor did he have him use words like all if he meant only some. All things, all things are become new. Where we used to care greatly about the clothes we wear, the cars we own, the vacations we take, all things to a new Christian have become new. We used to get angry and depressed. We used to lust after others and to drink ourselves into oblivion too. But all things have become new, right? Notice that the passage does not tell us that all things will, over time, become new. But instead it says, all things are or have become new. But how is this possible, knowing that we continue to reside in bodies of flesh and bone, which insist on getting angry, being proud, and continuing to lust? What is it that is doing these sinful deeds and carrying out such actions, which are so contrary to who we really are in Jesus Christ? Is it the Christian that we are, or is it our former self? In the book of Romans, Paul, the apostle to the Gentile nations, wrote something extraordinary about this new identity in Christ. To explain the paradoxical situation of living in physical bodies of sinful flesh, but having been eternally forgiven and made clean, Paul said, speaking of sin, Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. What is Paul saying? Is he suggesting that when he sins, he, that is Paul, is not the one doing the sinning, but that it is the sin which lives in his body of flesh that does it? This is exactly what he is saying. Now let me be clear. I am not suggesting that we are not accountable for misbehavior we do as believers, nor am I suggesting that as believers we are not expected to grow in our faith and have our minds renewed by the washing of the Word of God. Matthew 5, 3-12 suggests otherwise. We will be judged of the things we do in our body as believers and rewarded accordingly. We are expected by God to let the Holy Spirit within us change how we behave in our flesh. I suggest that our perspective of really seeing who we have become in Him by grace through faith will help us achieve those expectations. You see, when we have seen and heard and believed in our heart, and confessed with our mouths that Jesus is the Messiah, and God chooses to regenerate us, giving us new birth and sending the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, our former self dies, and we become new creatures spiritually. This is our true new identity. Is it infantile? In some ways. Do we have a learning curve as Christians on how to let the Spirit rule over our bodies of flesh and bones? Sure, but we must understand that that which goes to God at death of our physical body is clean of all sin, past, present, and future, and that our very person has become a new creature in Christ. We are a spiritual creature 
that is, wholly, wholly dead to the things of the world, to all the things of the world. And in this new spirit, all things have become new. Anything we do while residing in our bodies, which is of this world, is no longer the real eternal us. It's not the real eternal us that does things in that body, but the sin that is still living and residing in our souls and bodies of ugly flesh. Context is everything in Scripture. To emphasize this point, let's consider the whole portion of Scripture from which Paul makes his issue so clear as found in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. There he wrote, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, Paul speaking of himself, am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that doeth it, but sin that dwells in me. I find a new law then, when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Reread the last line of these passages, verse 25, where Paul concludes, So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Notice he writes that when he serves the law of God, he says that it is I myself that does the serving. But when he sins, he doesn't say it is himself, but instead he says it is the flesh. I recently received an unfortunate phone call from a dear friend informing me that his lovely young wife had died unexpectedly. Naturally, he was overcome with grief. But as the weeks and months passed, we were able to converse at length about the meaning of life, death, and ultimately what it really meant to be a Christian. As our conversations deepened, I was able to see that my friend was living under a somewhat horrible misconception. He somehow thought that his wife went to God in possession of certain sins she had committed while she was alive. This errant thought had initially plagued the man since her passing and the dark was doing its best to rob him of peace and joy 
and all that believers ought to have when they contemplate the state of those who die unto the Lord. Using these very passages from Paul as my premise, I suggested the following to my friend in an effort to not only bring him comfort, but to teach him the truth which sets us free. I said, when your lovely wife, who loved the Lord, took her last breath, her soul went directly to the loving arms of our King, wholly unencumbered by her physical body, and, and, wholly freed from the things the flesh of her physical person did. You see, I continued, when her body died, all of her sinful ways died too, and her real person, perfectly cleansed by the shed blood of our king, went to him. In her real identity, in her real person, in her spirit, she really was, because of Christ, sinless. Her identity, her real identity, was wholly cleansed, is wholly pure, and at her death, all the residue sins that still lived in her flesh, which would not leave her alone when she was alive, lay dead and rotting in the grave. But your real wife, my friend, which was then completely identified with Christ, went to him. He understood. But what about those of us who have not died physically, but instead remain in the flesh and are still subject to the failures therein? Well, just ask, how did Paul view himself while he was in the flesh? So then, Paul said, with the mind I myself, with the mind I myself serve the law of God. What he means is with his new spiritual identity, his thoughts, his real mind, his spiritual will, his heavenly emotions, he would serve the law of God. But, he adds, rationally admitting that he would at times fail to live the desires of his new identity, but with the flesh, the law of sin. For those Christians left to live in this fallen world in these corrupt bodies, the question then becomes, what will we look to, see ourselves as, and serve as Christians? The old life that lives in our flesh, sin, or our new identities regenerated to life in spirit, Christ. Before this important issue can be addressed, the first matter at hand is to help believers know that they do, in fact, possess a new identity which has actually become the real them. Once this fact is understood and remembered, the ability to serve the Spirit, or our true new identity, becomes all the more a living reality. It sort of works like this. A true Christian is not what remains or lives in one's flesh and soul. That is just a remnant of the former life. The identity of an authentic Christian is what resides in the Spirit, which was wrought about by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. There's no effort or work or level of performance required. If we are in Christ, we are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It is done. And this is identity, my friends. Total, absolute identity in the life of Christ and his death and resurrection. 
Through this identification with him, our flesh becomes conformable to his goodness, his death, and his resurrection. Do you believe it? Trust it? Have faith in God's word that claims it? Armed with this information, we then have a minute-to-minute choice on how to actually see ourselves as human beings saved by the blood of God. Am I a man who battles the elements in my flesh, focuses on them, works on them really, really hard? Or do I actually see my identity completely in Christ, where the old individual is now non-existent? Am I really his? If so, why on earth would I see myself in any other fashion? And if I don't see or view myself in any other way, why would I embrace actions that are part of a former life? They are not me. I have a new identity. Truly, I am in him and he is in me. I am an absolutely new person and I am nothing of what I was. When I realize that this is a reality, a reality, Why would I ever find myself doing or living by what my former self did or resonated to? And if or when my former self rises up and acts, I can just laugh and say, that isn't me. I'm a Christian. I'm a new creature. All things are new. And the actions and attitudes of our former selves die in the shadow of our bright spirit. Imagine for a minute that when you were born, your parents took you on a trip to the Amazon and lost you on the riverbanks. And from the time you were an infant up until you were 12 years of age, you were raised by apes. At that age, however, you were seen by some Christian missionaries, rescued, and returned to your home in St. Louis, Missouri. Upon arrival, and after several medical exams, you are are sort of given up as a man-ape. The doctors were convinced no matter how much you were re-educated and trained, you would always identify and see the world as... A man ape. Your parents try and treat you like a regular boy. They give you a room and tuck you in bed at night, but in the morning they find you hanging in the backyard trees, eating grubs, and screeching to the top of your lungs. Man ape, they conclude. Then one day, a curious man happens by the backyard and takes an interest in you. Over time, he teaches you to do something no ape has ever learned to do to read. And you spend the next 10 years straight reading everything you can get your hands on. It doesn't take long for you to realize that you are a human being, that you ought to walk upright, and that human beings actually do different things than apes. You can learn to drive a car, do math, and actually watch and understand complex films. Soon you discover a love for the piano, and for history, and French literature. By the time you are in your early 20s, you are discovered to have an extremely high IQ. You are admitted to Harvard having skipped high school because your intelligence and test scores are so far off the charts. In college, you are found to have a special ability in solving highly complex issues related to economics. Your professors recognize your insights. Soon you are invited to speak at various gatherings of world industrialists who are concerned with world markets. You are recruited to write letters dealing with world economies, and you are even asked to serve as a cabinet member of a new American presidency. One afternoon, while sitting in your office in the White House, you look out the window and see a line of tall trees blowing in the breeze. 
suddenly you have an urge to go out and swing from the branches. The question is, is that urge to swing from the branches really who you are, or are you actually an accomplished, intelligent, responsible, educated individual who, while in his flesh, might occasionally yearn to hang from a tree, but in his real heart has far more involved and interesting things to do. There in your office, you just smile, look away from the trees and say, that's not me. I am someone completely different now. So it is with the identity in Christ. No matter what our urges, they are not us. So we do not give them time or attention. We don't feed them, entertain them, or feel badly about them. They are not who we are. Quite frankly, even if we do find ourselves having gone back to swing from the trees, that is not what we are in Christ. That is not our identity. And realizing this, our activities of old will quickly fade. Unless, of course, we enjoy our former selves and want to keep that former person alive, but that's for an entirely different time. For the rest of us, we are new, we are cleansed, we are His, all by faith, period. Now, once this fact has been fully digested, what and whom we choose to be, to love, and to serve becomes a far more simple choice, doesn't it? I mean, if we really understand that we are new creations in Christ, why focus on behaviors and attitudes which only existed in our former lives? A true Christian won't. This is the single most important point to understand about being a committed Christian. When people are truly Christian, they are new creatures, and the actions and attitudes of their former lives become a non-event to them, something that has no effect or force on their being. Instead of letting their flesh reign, they see the actions of the old man or old woman for exactly what they are, an attempt of their old flesh to take charge. But they respond by trusting that their new identity in Christ will overcome the setbacks and failures their flesh continually tries to get them to focus upon. When we are new creations, we would never fret or feel guilty over temptations to swing from the trees. Why? This is not us in the least. Therefore, we give the inclination no attention. And if we happen to give in to tree swinging, we ultimately trust that our new identity will shortly tell us that it is immature, unintelligent, unfitting action of a true son or daughter of God. And we return to what our new identity is interested in doing, serving Him and not ourselves. A major part of the problem we face in the body today is directly tied to the indisputable fact that many believers have not come to discover their completely new identity in Christ. And so they respond to the world in the way the world works and responds, according to who and what they used to be before receiving their new identity. The failure for believers to discover their new identity is directly tied to a lack of understanding God's Word. And a lack of understanding God's Word is directly tied to pastors substituting teaching it for anything and everything else. When a people or a person truly come to see who they are in Jesus, they will then live as Jesus wants them to live, love as Jesus wants them to love, and share as Jesus wants them to share. And all the acts and attitudes of this world will stay where they belong, dead, 
and buried with him. Part 2 and Chapter 9 The Philosophy Behind Passive Prayerful Christian Resistance Human nature? Quite a funny thing. Generally speaking, there are ubiquitous characteristics we all share. Humans like to be right, seek unconditional acceptance and love, and enjoy being appreciated. Additionally, most people do not like being criticized, condemned, singled out in a negative way, or embarrassed. These traits, plus many more that will go unmentioned, are all packaged up very nicely and neatly in our persons the moment we enter the world, and possibly even at the moment of conception. As I mentioned in the previous chapter, we know from Scripture that as believers in Christ, all people become a new creature, where old things are passed away and all things are become new. It is hoped that once a person possesses a new identity in Christ, they will not only overcome their very human need for constant love, acceptance, and appreciation, but will also learn to embrace criticism, condemnation, and even embarrassment, especially in our cause for Christ. Possibly, God willing and God working, we will also lose our natural inclination to always want to be right. These changes, however, only represent one side of the Christian coin, so to speak. The other side of the same coin paradoxically requires us to actually employ unconditional acceptance, love, and appreciation of others, while rejecting the constant self-need for the same, and simultaneously refrain from using criticism, condemnation, and embarrassment in our interactions with the world. In other words, as Christians, we seek to get to the place where we are able to patiently and lovingly bear personal injustice, mistreatment, persecution, and even loss of rights, while at the same time learning to employ just the opposite characteristics in our relationship with others. Being a genuine Christian is obviously not an easy task. For this reason, many people who consider themselves Christian respond to life and living by only seeing one side of the coin, the side where they overcome much of the personal need to be constantly accepted and loved, somehow forgetting that they have an obligation to constantly and unconditionally accept and love others. The main purpose of this booklet, if you haven't seen it coming, is to strongly suggest a focus on both sides of the coin. This is especially true when it comes to the modern Christian response to world politics, elections, and fighting against what Christians collectively consider pressing social ills. But it seems that at the present, the so-called coin isn't even in the game. As mentioned, most modern believers today, especially in the United States, have made political action, voting, protesting, campaigning, a Christian mandate. They literally speak as though ye must be active against the evils in the world like it's a passage of scripture. Just last night after speaking at an event, I met an audience where most of the people, all were apparently believing Christians, were wearing an I voted sticker. One man proudly pointing to the sticker on his chest said in a rather loud voice, Sean, did you vote today? I smiled. No, I didn't. Come on, Sean, are you kidding me? He replied most indignantly. No, I said, I'm not kidding you. But that is just the basic Christian duty, my brother, he quipped. The room went silent. 
I looked him in the eyes and walked toward him. I tell you what, you show me any passage in scripture that tells me God wants me as a Christian to have anything to do with voting, campaigning, or protesting, and I will repent and jump on board forever. There was a long pause among the people. Nobody said a word. Nobody knew what to say. I doubt any of them have ever been challenged by the notion. Then suddenly the man who sort of called me out said, But it's only right. And we want to do what is right as believers, don't we? What do you suggest we all do? Just sit there? Do nothing? Show me a verse. Just one, I said smiling. Somebody came up to me later and quoted one of the most popular man-made bromides used by socially active Christians today. It is thought to have originated from a social philosopher by the name of Edmund Burke, and it says, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Unfortunately, many Christians have glommed onto this statement as though it came from the pen of Paul or the finger of God. Not so. In fact, Scripture leans in an opposite direction in many ways. When Jesus was on earth, a man earnestly approached him and said, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Somewhere along the line, we have forgotten this, believing today that men are good. And in believing this fallacy, we in turn look from the cross for our solutions and into the fumbling dry hands of failing man. You see, Jesus, the only good man to ever walk the earth, has single-handedly already triumphed over evil. John 16.33 says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I would suggest that, based on the Bible, all that is necessary for triumph of evil is time, and that evil will have its temporary victory so long as men live in and by their flesh. It's been foretold. It's a foregone conclusion, and there is nothing we can do to alter its inevitable course. This is not to suggest that as individuals, whether Americans or citizens of other countries, that it is wrong or improper to get involved in fighting social ills or voting or campaigning. Every human being, Christian or not, has the right to support or attack issues that are contrary to their conscience or way of seeing the world. I am certain that God has called some believers to take up causes and positions in civil affairs. But the point is Christianity as a whole, should never believe or endorse the idea that we have a God-authored duty to collectively embrace any one political party or seek to collectively fight against some ugly social evil. When we make this our cause, we have utterly lost what we are called to be and do as believers, and that is to share Jesus Christ in love as the only solution to things that threaten our comfort, security, and or peace of mind. Why would I suggest this? Why is it wrong, errant, or failing for the collective body of Christ to demand that believers vote Republican, or Democrat for that matter, or to unite and fight against abortion clinics, homosexuality, pornography, evolution taught in schools, and or against further fracturing of family values? Let me suggest several reasons. Number one, 
By joining in such activities, Christians become known more for what we stand against as believers than what we stand for, Jesus Christ crucified. And what we ought to represent is the only thing that will make any real difference in the lives of the lost and searching people. To a homosexual, Jesus is the solution. To the drug addict, Jesus is the liberty, the truth, the life. To theories that mankind has no creator, he brings light and hope, not what we stand against. When we are known more for what we stand against, we automatically alienate far too many people who need to know what we stand for, so they can later choose to share the source of their salvation with others and to change their minds on other issues. This was the very same aim Jesus had the day he sent his disciples out. Number two, when Christians make political action and the curing of social evil a part of their faith repertoire, the entire body becomes subject to governmental scrutiny. In time, and in large part because we deserve it, the federal government will begin to view Christianity as much as a political entity as a religious one. Armed with this evidence, which we are unwittingly supplying them with, they will shut us down as a faith. In order to avoid being shut down altogether, many churches and clergy will be forced to comply with the neutral standards of the world, which teach a non-confrontational, politically correct, watered-down version to the only solution of personal salvation. What this will mean is that the right to lovingly speak and teach and to inform people about God's actual views on divorce and homosexuality and abortion, etc., will be lost altogether, and any and all hope to bring right action through Jesus Christ will be forfeited, all because a bunch of rabid Christians, having begun in the Spirit, decided to take on the world and try to perfect it through their flesh. Number three, in an effort to cure, save, and or change the world through politics, or good men willing to do something, True Christianity ultimately exposes itself to a number of unhealthy alliances with other non-Christian but morally upright faith-based groups. A classic case in point is the Mormon Christian Alliance mentioned in chapter 5, which started forming just within the first 10 years of the 21st century. Mormonism, while representing morality, is a doctrinal cult. Their stance on the nature of God, Jesus, extra scripture, salvation, Sabbath days, tithing, and Masonic temple rituals for exaltation are but a scratch at the surface of how unbiblical a faith can be that presumes to preach Jesus Christ. But as a well-intentioned means to save the nation and the world from what appears to be inevitable moral decay, Christians have more and more been willing to join hands with the Mormon people, and the most important lines of true saving grace are blurred by the Union. In situations like these, only Mormonism and those like them win, while biblical Christianity, once again, takes a hit. As a result, more and more people the world over will embrace false religion because it appears to be Christian and because it does so much social good for the ailing nation. Finally, number four, one thing certain in life is there is only so much time we have all been given to live. As believers, it is incumbent upon us to choose wisely where we allocate these short months and fleeting years. 
we do have a choice, you know. So you can spend them sharing Jesus, fighting those who don't know or believe in his name, or doing nothing. We can spend our lives giving away Bibles, feeding the poor, and are blessing widows and orphans, or we can spend our years with a megaphone plastered to our lips and screaming in the name of God that anyone and everyone who doesn't agree with our values is going to rot in hell. What did Jesus spend his time doing? What about his apostles? How did Jesus behave and respond in one of the most trying times of existence during the Roman Empire to his environment? It is here that we might all discover our philosophy for Christian living. Epilogue. In the United States of America, there are two major parties which compete for governmental power, the Democrat and the Republican. Each, in my opinion, offers an assortment of positives and negatives in their theories on how to control and govern the nation. Personally, I think both approaches are limited in perspective. Nevertheless, I wholeheartedly support the biblical edict to submit to whatever governmental leaders are in office and to obey the laws of whatever land in which I live. I so do because I have been directed to do it by the only authority I truly recognize in my life, that of Jesus Christ and his word. Not only does God tell believers to submit and to obey those placed in governing authority over us, he tells us to pray for them. Consider 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for those that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is good. At the same time, I think we have arrived at a point where believers might consider rejecting any and all political party affiliations. For me, I have trouble with the piety, arrogance, smugness, and overall attitude which seems to exude from many Republican representatives that I see. I find their allegiance to big business, capitalism at all costs, and their stand-on-your-own-two-feet-you-bum attitudes nauseating. Yet their conservative approach to fiscal policy has, at times, been admirable, as compared to the free-willing spending of its counterpart, the Democrats. And while the Democrats, in my opinion, are not so smarmy and good old boyish, they can appear morally obtuse. For them, there appears to always be a built-in push against progress, against what has been labeled family values, and it seems at times what we call free speech. No matter what side you find yourself on, politics are politics, and politicians are, in fact, politicians. I therefore find it impossible as a Bible-believing Christian to embrace republicanism as a whole. At the same time, I would never be accepted into the ranks of the Democrats because they have collectively made frank and open speech, especially regarding issues that the Bible plainly calls sin, forbidden. To me, it seems if you're a Republican, you have to lock arms with extremely political people whose focus tends to be on mandating morality. And if you are a Democrat, there appears to be a constant undercurrent mandating immorality. Both approaches make me equally sick. Maybe true followers of our Lord ought to start what would be a non-party of our own. A party that looks like Jesus would look if he were here and alive on earth a party of service to the poor and outcast, a party of unconditional love, a party that refuses any and all attempts to change the world through social salvation or political intervention. 
A party that is not a party at all. Just Christians doing what Jesus did. Individually, as families, and at the most as congregations, led by the love of Christ within us. The world is going to fall and continue to fall fast. We are not going to stop it. So I say let it come. And in the meanwhile, I for one will put all my faith and all my trust and all my hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. If you want to know more about this approach or question its premise, you can contact us in the following ways. You can call 1-888-868-4686. You can email Sean at S-H-A-W-N at aletheamedia.com, A-L-A-T-H-E-A media.com. You can also write 4760 Highland Drive, number 515, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84117. You can also tune in and watch our weekly program at www.hotm.tv.